0: Welcome back to GemCast. This is part three in a series on geriatric toxicology with Dr. Mei-Yen, who is an emergency physician and also trained in toxicology. In parts one and two, we talked about salicylate and Tylenol overdoses in older adults. As always, you can find us online, gempodcast.com, and you can connect on Twitter. The handle is at gempodcast. I would love to hear from you with any thoughts or suggestions. Today, we are going to be talking about two different medications, digoxin and calcium channel blockers. I certainly learned a lot in talking with May about these medications and their overdoses, and I hope you will too. Thanks for listening. For our first case back,
1: let's talk about digoxin. So this is a medication that has fallen a little bit by the wayside, even in the last few years. I feel like we're not seeing quite as many patients on it. But those who are on it are usually older adults, people who have either been on it for a long time and so have just stayed on it, or other medications have not worked for them. So what do we need to know about digoxin toxicity?
2: Digoxin uh, is literally one of my least favorite calls or consults in the middle of the night, just because each case is so different. And uh, what I recommend on paper sometimes doesn't translate quite as uh, clearly at at the bedside because every case is so different. But digoxin, as you know, inhibits the sodium and potassium ATPA on your cardiac membrane. In just normal dosing, what you get is a bit of an increase in calcium level intracellularly, which causes increased inotropy, which is what most people on, are on it for, either for rate control for AFib or maybe some heart failure to have that extra squeeze. In overdose, you have a massive, excessive amount of calcium within the cell, and what that does is actually alters the resting potential of the cell membrane and that results in um myocardial tissue sensitivity and it predisposes it to dysrhythmias. What's also interesting about digoxin is that in terms of the elimination, it has what we call a two compartment model. So it actually will equilibrate in your serum and then spread out into your tissue. And what we're interested in in terms of toxicity is the level in your tissue, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to the level in your serum right away or immediately after ingestion. So a lot of times if you want to know the level of it, it depends a little bit on what time you took the medicine. So I generally don't trust the level unless I know it's six hours out from the time of ingestion.
1: Let's talk first about acute ingestions.
2: We probably see a lot less of these acute ingestions. I think maybe more in pediatrics who get a hold of grandma or grandpa's medications. But in acute ingestion, you expect them to be have very mild symptoms or be almost asymptomatic for several hours just because it takes time for it to redistribute and to really take effect. But you think of all the nonspecific symptoms, nausea, vomiting, some abdominal pain. So some people that say if you're several hours after an ingestion, you have no clinical symptoms, if nausea, vomiting, that's a well enough marker in terms of saying that you're not having acute poisoning. I personally think if you're somewhere who you can get a level, I would just get a level. Again, you have abdominal pain, you get weakness. The key finding that we always think about with digitoxicity toxicity acutely is bradycardia and hypotension from that. And that generally is from increased vagal tone at the SA and the AV nodes. So in the acute ingestion, actually, atropine is thought to be a good treatment because it's something you can actually reverse, and this is different in the chronics. But then as the ingestion goes on, the bradycardia could then progress into tachyarrhythmia, and that is when you have the the true morbidity and the the mortality with the DIG.
1: So it starts off maybe asymptomatic or some nonspecific nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain weakness, and then cardiac toxicity, you see that with some bradycardia, and then the tachy dysrhythmias. Yeah. And then what about chronic ingestions, which is probably what we'll see more of, people who maybe have some growing renal failure, and now
2: their DIG level is becoming toxic. What does that present with? Yeah, no, that's a great point, because DIG is mostly renally cleared, so... We call it one of the summertime drugs. When people are out in the heat, maybe they sweat a little bit more, their kidneys take a slight hit, and suddenly their levels, uh, which were therapeutic before, now are suddenly super therapeutic. But... Again, it's always the non-specific symptoms that you hate to see as a chief complaint in an elderly patient, like weakness, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite. The key board question that I've seen, which I've not seen actually play out in person, is uh, the yellow halos around lights. And you also get CNS, like a little delirium, a little confusion. You also have the cardiac toxicity that you think of, so you can see the brady dysrhythmia, the bradycardia as well. This is usually more from a direct action on the heart, so it's thought to be not as responsive to atropine. So one one thing kind of anecdotally I think of, if somebody has persistent bradycardia, hypotension, not responding to atropine, I start thinking about DIG. Um, And of course, you get the dysrhythmias with the late poisoning or the chronic ones as well. And I think the big one on the board for that is the bidirectional VTAC, which again, I've also never seen in person.
1: So what do we need to do to diagnose whether this is an overdose or whether their symptoms are due to something else?
2: So we're lucky enough to live somewhere where we can get a a serum digoxin concentration. I say if they're on dig, I generally always just check a dig level with any kind of complaints. I mean if they come in with a step toe, that's totally different. But you know, Mm -hmm. within reason. Therapeutic range for digoxin is generally 0.5 to 2.0 although i would check with your individual lab however again like we were saying earlier if you have to know when the last dose or the last time of ingestion was because if it's under six hours say they just took it an hour ago you get an elevated ditch level but they look great in front of you i wouldn't trust that i would just wait repeat it and see what it is because that just might be the falsely elevation the false elevation of it in the serum before it distributes out What else do we need to check in these patients? Mm, That's a great question. So the key thing, the big thing to really check, of course, you get an EKG, but the big marker that we use is really potassium. And there's a bunch of studies that show that potassium is actually a better indicator, prognostic indicator for death than either the EKG or the digoxin level itself. And the idea of that is that that's really because it's an indication, it's a reflection of the poisoning of the sodium potassium pump. So you can see the degree that that's poisoned.
1: And digoxin toxicity is one of the ones that we actually do have a very specific antidote for. What are the indications for treating with that, either acutely and then chronically?
2: The struggle with digoxin for me is that there's no clear cutoff. Short of having a ridiculously high level of digoxin, such as greater than 10 um, nanograms per milliliter of way after six hours or greater than 15 nanograms per per milliliter at any time, there's not really any kind of clear cutoff. You're not like a level of four or a level of five. A lot of it really depends on your clinical presentation. So I start thinking of using Digibind if there's any evidence of hemodynamic instability like hypotension, bradycardia, any life-threatening dysrhythmias. Not necessarily like a-fib or anything, but clearly if they're having ventricular dysrhythmias. And then just generally you start thinking about it and somebody who's elderly, who maybe has an elevated level, altered mental status, just generally does not look well, those are people we start thinking about. And then you mentioned earlier the potassium. So if their potassium is greater than 5, you would treat it? Absolutely. That's the big kicker. Um, So the studies have shown that potassium greater than 5. Some literature say 5.5. I tend to go towards 5.5 personally in treating. It's really been shown more with an acute ingestion, but absolutely you want to think about it with the chronic ingestion as well. And then the other thing to think about when you're giving Digifab is that once you give it, you can't rely on levels. Because if you remeasure it, it will measure both the bound and the unbound of the digoxin. So it will come back higher than when you first gave it. So a lot of times we we base if we need to redose off of their clinical status. I'll say cardiologists hate Digifab because you also need to think about why they're on it to begin with. Is this somebody who's on Dig because they have AFib and you think you can just help rate control them? if they flip back into it, or is this somebody who needs it for the chronic inotropia? Are you going to flip them into CHF exacerbation, worsen their clinical status? Something to think about, and I I never give Digifab very lightly. It's it's always um, a big decision if it comes down to that.
0: I'm going to jump in and try to summarize this because it's actually pretty nuanced and there's a lot of information. First off, digitalis or digoxin is a cardiac glycoside. It binds to the sodium potassium ATPase. And that, if you can recall back to medical school, is an enzyme that uses ATP, It hydrolyzes ATP, and in the process, pumps out three sodium ions and pumps in two potassium ions. And it's really the workhorse of what helps maintain the membrane potential. Now, in muscle cells, what happens is when you inhibit that pump, you get more intracellular sodium building up. You have another transport exchanger going on at the same time, which is the sodium-calcium exchanger, where you have three sodium ions coming into the cell and one calcium being pumped out. Now, if you've inhibited your sodium-potassium ATPase, then you have more sodium inside the cell, so that sodium-calcium exchanger is not working as rapidly and you have buildup of calcium in the cell. And that's what leads to the increased inotropy, increased contractility of the cardiac myocytes. So what happens in an acute overdose? Well, within the first few hours, three or four hours, you're going to have some GI symptoms, so usually nausea, vomiting, or abdominal pain. And at the same time, uh, if you do have a clinically significant overdose, you're going to have some bradycardia or PVCs. And this is from a direct effect on the AV node. So there's an increase in vagal tone affecting your SA node and your AV node, and you have bradycardia. Why does it matter how it happens? Well, this bradycardia is responsive to atropine because it's acting at the AV node and the SA node. Acute toxicity is usually going to be from an intentional overdose, or in kids, they're curious and they get into somebody's medications. Chronically, though, which is what we'll see more often in older adults, this can be from either chronically just taking too much by accident or more likely from new renal failure that then increases the level of digoxin in the serum. Another possibility is it can be from combinations with other medications. So, for example, if a patient has recently started a new medication like verapamil or amiodarone, those can inhibit excretion of the digoxin and result in an increased level. Other things you might not think about, such as antibiotics, things like macrolides and tetracyclines can kill the gut bacteria that break down digoxin, so you have an increase in the absorption of about 25%. Other things that might do it are a little dehydration, either from decreased PO fluid intake, increased losses, uh, as May mentioned in the summer or diuretics. You may have a slight renal failure from a new diuretic, and that could cause an increased level of digoxin. And then also diuretics, some of them can cause hypokalemia, which potentiates the effect of the digoxin because digoxin inhibits the sodium-potassium ATPase. So if you have less potassium around, then that transporter is, is already a little bit uh, less active. Chronically, you will see a lot of different dysrhythmias. You can see bradycardia and other rhythms that are due to direct activity on the myocytes. So this is in contrast to the acute toxicity where it's affecting the SA node and the AV node. Here it's acting on the myocytes at the sodium, potassium, ATPs, et cetera, and so it's not atropine responsive. You should get an EKG. Things you might see, PVCs are the most common, premature ventricular contractions, and then bradycardia, things like atrial tachyarrhythmias with AV block ventricular bigeminy, junctional rhythms, any sort of AV block. You can have a complete, you could have a Mobitz type 2, ventricular tachycardia, V-fib, and then bidirectional v is this unicorn of which we hear speak but have never actually seen. One more thing you may see on the EKG, and I just want to put in a plug for the Life in the Fast Lane EKG collection. They have a great library of EKGs and a set of EKGs on digoxin. You may see this kind of scooping of the saint segment where it's kind of looks like sagging. Some people say it looks like Salvador Dali's mustache. If you see that, it does not mean the patient is toxic. It's just one of the side effects that you see as a result of the effects of the digoxin. Let's talk now about the potassium because it can be a little bit complicated. In acute toxicity, if I took just a healthy person and gave you a huge whopping dose of digoxin, you would develop hyperkalemia. Because you're inhibiting that sodium potassium ATPase, and I know if I say that word one more time, somebody's going to reach through the, the stereo system and hit me, but it inhibits that pump, so you result in more potassium outside the cell because you're not pumping it into the cells, so you have hyperkalemia, and that is a sign of a dangerous overdose. So if you see somebody with bradycardia and hyperkalemia, think about, look at their med list, see if they're on digoxin. In chronic toxicity, by contrast, you may have hypokalemia. That pump, which will not be named, is inhibited. So chronically, you've had more potassium outside the cells, and your kidneys have had time to excrete it. So you may actually be overall down in your total body potassium, and you may be hypokalemic in those chronic ingestions. And as I mentioned that can potentiate the effects of the digoxin because that's going to slow down your pump already. And now uh, the digoxin adds to that. So when should you treat this and how do you treat it? Well, of course, you're going to do your ABCs. If they're very altered, you're going to protect their airway, resuscitate with fluids if they need it. Treat for any life-threatening or unstable arrhythmia. So obviously things like VTAC, VFib, complete heart block, symptomatic bradycardia, a Mobitz type 2 block, and then treat if their potassium is over 5 or 5.5 and may mention maybe leaning towards a little bit the higher side of the 5.5 but again it depends on the entire clinical picture And then treat if you see signs of end organ dysfunction due to hypoperfusion, like acute renal failure or altered mental status. And this is where it can get a little bit tricky, because is that acute renal failure due to hypoperfusion from their dysrhythmia, which hopefully you would have noticed other signs of that, or is it that the acute renal failure has actually caused the toxic level of digoxin? Now, they do not recommend treating just based on a concentration, but if you wanted to get a concentration, which we recommend, and see what is abnormal. Typically, if it's over 10 nanograms per milliliter acutely or greater than four nanograms per milliliter chronically, that may be somebody who needs treatment. But again, it should be treated based on the clinical signs and symptoms and not just treating a number how much do you have to take to overdose? In an adult having more than 10 milligrams, that's 40 tablets because they're 250 microgram tablets. Or in a kid, it depends on the size of the kid, but greater than four milligrams, you would want to consider treating that. The treatment is with Digibind, which is a monoclonal antibody fragment. One vial contains 40 milligrams and is about $3,500 here in the US. And treatment Dose depends on how much they've taken. So it can depend on the level or the amount that they've taken. Empiric treatment on the low end is with 10 vials. So that's a quick $35,000. And cost is not the only downside of treatment. You have to weigh the risks and benefits. Other risks of treatment could be that once you bind all their digoxin, the pathology for which they were on it manifests itself. So that might be rapid AFib, or it might be acute decompensated heart failure, so it really depends, and that's why you have to treat based on symptoms and not on the numbers. That treatment is if you have a single large acute overdose. If you decide that you have a chronic ingestion that requires treatment, then the dose, the amount of Digifab is different, and it depends on the patient's weight and their serum level of digoxin, and treatment may range from just half a vial up to about 20 vials. Now, finally, how do you manage the potassium? I've told you you can have hyperkalemia acutely or maybe hypokalemia chronically. If a patient has hyperkalemia, In most cases, at least routinely, it's not recommended that you treat with the insulin bicarb glucose. Treatment has not showed improvements in mortality. Now, definitely, you have to look at the overall picture. If the potassium is very high and you think that could contribute to mortality, then I would discuss with the poison control, talk to a toxicologist potentially about treatment. But if you are going to be giving Digibind and there's hyperkalemia, once you treat with that Digibind, you're now... Allowing your sodium-potassium ATPases to become active, and that potassium in the serum is now going to be pumped back into the cells. So if you have treated with potassium-lowering agents, then you may actually have some hypokalemia after you treat with a Digibind. Now there is this controversy about calcium. You may have heard, like I did, that treating a digoxin overdose with calcium will result in a stone heart where the myocytes contract and they can't release and they're just stuck there. And the idea is that the digoxin already increases your intracellular calcium level, so then if you treat with additional calcium because of the hyperkalemia, then you're going to overwhelm the heart with calcium and it'll just turn into a rock. In talking with May, the evidence for this is pretty old, back into the 1920s, and largely in animals. There have been some retrospective studies in humans, and they have shown no increased mortality in giving calcium to these patients on digoxin. Of course, the numbers are small, and it's difficult to make firm recommendations. However, May did say most toxicologists would recommend giving calcium and other potassium-treating agents in the setting of hyperkalemia. I think it really just depends on the overall picture. If somebody comes in with digoxin toxicity acutely and high potassium, perhaps signs of it on an EKG like a YQRS, I would treat with calcium and then other potassium-lowering agents with the caveat that these are just temporizing measures until you can get the digibind to counteract the underlying problem. If you look at sources like UpToDate, they will say there's no increased benefit in terms of mortality in treating with the potassium-lowering agents, but again, there are no great studies on this. So it's going to depend on how high it is and if there's signs of cardiac instability as a result of the hyperkalemia. If it's just a little bit high, 5.6 to 5.7, you're probably not going to be pulling out all your drugs now, in the case of a chronic toxicity, if you're a hypokalemic, on the other hand, you do want to replete the potassium, particularly if you are giving Digibind, because once you bind up that digoxin and allow your sodium potassium ATPase to become active, it's going to drop your potassium. So if you're already hypokalemic, you want to replete that. And as always, you want to check a magnesium and replete that if needed. And that is a wrap for Digoxin.
1: Finally, we are going to talk about calcium channel blocker toxicity. Calcium channel blockers, you (laughs) mentioned, are one of the toxicities that make you most nervous.
2: What is it about them that is so concerning to you? I think one of the big things is that they're just, they're highly lipophilic, so they're just widely distributed. And in overdoses, they're just they're so impressive with their presentations and this is one of those few overdoses. I feel like as time has gone on and we have so much at our disposal in terms of saving lives and intervening, but there are people who truly take a toxic dose of calcium channel blockers that you just can't rescue them from. And I've not seen that with a lot of other medications. I feel like this is one of the few ones where no matter what you do, they can be on multiple pressers getting everything and they just simply have taken too much and their body can't handle it. So I think it's just the Dramatic presentation of it, the wide distribution of it, as well as the ease of accessibility. Mm. Let's start just by talking about
1: calcium channel blockers, what they do, and then how patients present.
2: Yeah, so in calcium channel blockers, I think about two different categories: the non-dihydropyridines, like the verapamil and the diltiazem, and then the dihydropyridines. So verapamil, diltiazem are ones that have direct inhibitory effects on the SA and the AV nodes versus the dihydropyridines, which are the amylodipenes and the cartipenes. They tend to act more as peripheral, like a vasodilator so they don't have such um, direct cardiac action. In general, when you think about an overdose in one or the other, a dihydroperidine maybe makes me a little bit less nervous, although with the caveat that in large overdoses, you lose receptor uh, selectivity, so you can absolutely see its effect directly on the heart as well. And you also have to be in, aware to the dihydropyridine sometimes will cause a reflex tachycardia because of the vasodilatation. So just because they're not bradycardic does not mean that they're not calcium channel blocker toxic.
1: Interesting. So you could have a normal heart rate and still be toxic.
2: Correct. Yeah. So the hallmark of calcium channel blockers, we always think about bradycardia hypotension. So a lot of symptoms come from that. You know, you get chest pain, you get fatigue, you get weakness. Ultra mental status is usually as a result of one of those, so if you have somebody who's altered but has normal vitals, good heart rate, good blood pressure, said they took calcium channel blocker, I wouldn't hang my money my hat on that. The verapamil dilatism, because of its direct action on the SA and the AV nodes, may present with new heart blocks. Like usually, it's a higher degree one, second or third degree. And then generally, what's interesting is in the exam you have warm extremities because of the vasodilation. And then the key hallmark in a, diagnosing a calcium channel blocker is there's L-type calcium channels within your pancreas, so you should see a hyperglycemia in patients as well. So we consider a glucose greater than 200 in a non-diabetic patient in the right setting of an overdose as an indication to start treatment.
1: Interesting. So is the degree of hyperglycemia, does that correlate with the level of toxicity?
2: In my experience, it has. We've A lot of times when we've had people who are really sick, their sugars just keep going up, up, up. We've had somebody who was on four pressers whose glucose was up to, I think, 500 or 600. I'll be honest, I don't know if this is borne out in literature this is anecdotal. What I've seen is that the sugar will start to resolve, and that's when I know it's time to start titrating down all my other interventions. So what are the treatments for calcium channel blocker overdose? So calcium channel blocker is one that I would think very aggressively about decontamination if it's early. If you're lucky enough to see one very early on, I would try to do everything possible to try to limit the amount of exposure with it because it is such a deadly, um, deadly drug. So early on, I will absolutely give activated charcoal if they're mentating, if their airway is patent. There's a little bit of controversy and some people would want to decontaminate with whole bowel irrigation or give multi-dose activated charcoal for fear of having concretions of the calcium channel blockers. There's been a couple of case reports of people who at autopsy when they opened up their bowel had a huge chunk of calcium channel blockers kind of just sitting in there. A lot of these medications are also extended release so you think that they're just continually to have a continued exposure. So if they have bowel sounds present, if they're awake and they're alert, I absolutely would give activated charcoal and I would consider whole bowel irrigation but you have to monitor them closely because remember there's calcium channels in your gut too so as you become more poisoned those will slow down your gut will slow and you don't want to just be pouring in large volumes of (laughs) go lightly in somebody whose gut's not moving so it takes close monitoring as well
1: interesting and then so decontamination mm -hmm. and it sounds similar to what you were saying with aspirin last time that you form this bezoar, so wanting to try to increase the rate of transit through the gut. Right. What else can we do in terms of treatment?
2: So you always think about doing something like giving atropine for hypertension, um, excuse me, hypotension, bradycardia. Calcium channel blockers, you may or may not respond. It's usually not long-acting, and so it's not something I would recommend kind of in the long term. always think about giving calcium if you think you're blocking the calcium channels. Generally what happens in a calcium channel blocker is that if the calcium does work, it's also very short-acting, and you need to be on ridiculous levels, just because the amount of calcium you need to give to overwhelm the receptor is just it's just not reasonable. There's been thoughts of using glucagon, although that's really been proven more with beta blockers, but glucagon will initiate a downstream effect that eventually works at the calcium receptor, so I don't think it works quite as well in calcium channel blockers. And then our big big things that we use with it is high-dose insulin or high-dose insulin euglycemia HIE and that's a relatively newish intervention with the idea that um, no one really clearly knows exactly why it works. The thoughts are that under times of stress your myocardium actually shifts from using fatty acids to carbohydrates and so the insulin helps take that up and the insulin has also been shown to be almost like an inherent So they've had a lot of studies where you show improved cardiac output increased entropy although it doesn't happen instantaneously it usually takes about 10, 10 anywhere from 10 minutes to like an hour to really see that clear effect so it's not like what you think of with the presser where you turn it on and they're automatically like perking up some people don't give it enough time before saying it's not working <laughs> and when you say
1: high dose it really is a high dose it what is. what
2: are some of the doses you're looking at so if you think about a dose for dka that's usually like 0.1 units per kilograms in these doses a conservative or lower high dose is considered 1 to 2 units Per kilogram per hour. So, say an average 70 kilogram man will get 70 units of insulin in a drip, which is pretty scary. Per Um, hour. Per hour, yeah. And then how much glucose or dextrose do you need to give to maintain you glycemia? However much you need. And people who are very severely poisoned, sometimes they won't even need it at all until they start resolving. I'll say too, there's some places, Minnesota, actually, they're. Protocol has has a rapid ramp up up to ten units per kilogram per hour. So if you think ours, you think one to two is high. <laughs> don't get poisoned in Minnesota. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then you mentioned earlier pressors. Are there certain pressors that are better than others?
2: Yeah. So we're not saying don't give pressors with uh, calcium channel blockers. It's just a lot of the literature has shown that the insulin works works just as well or even better. But the pressors that they do recommend is epinephrine or norepinephrine, things that are direct acting. Because if you think about dopamine, dopamine works because it becomes it's converted to norepinephrine and epinephrine. And that's actually a calcium mediated process. So just to take out that delay you want to go towards the the direct acting. And the amount of pressors that you need sometimes become ridiculously high. Arizona put out a recent study where their argument was because you have such a huge degree of vasodilatation with a calcium channel blocker overdose, you can give extremely high level of pressors without the concern for the distal ischemia that you would Mm -hmm. otherwise have. So I would not be afraid. You know, don't shy away from the pressors. Interesting. And
1: so I know uh, you mentioned calcium channel blockers are fat soluble, so they're not going to
2: be amenable to uh, elimination with hemodialysis. Is there anything else we can do? Yeah, there's this new sexy thing that's intralipid or intralipid fat emulsion. So this is definitely a relatively new trend in toxicology. It's still very unclear as in terms of the mechanism. But the idea of this is that because the calcium channel blocker is very lipid soluble, if you give a fat emulsion bolus, it creates what we think of a lipid sink to kind of pull it out of the tissue. And there's been some good anecdotal, like some case reports of severe calcium channel blocker toxicity that's been refractory to everything and they're given a dose of this and they start having improvement but on the flip side there's also some cases where people have acute decompensation i think this is one of the things that really suffers from reporting bias because nobody really reports oh Mm. i gave i gave the the fat emulsion and they died because it really is used right now as a rescue drug so we Mm. think of it in extreme refractory cases but i'm very interested to see what happens with this And then in terms of chronic toxicity, is there such a thing as chronic calcium channel blocker toxicity, or is that not really a concern? I think you always get a little concerned in the elderly, you know, who are on these medicines. I would say I wouldn't call it so much chronic toxicity as I would say therapeutic misadventure. Maybe sometimes they take an extra dose, or maybe they're on too high of a dose. So absolutely, it's a spectrum, and you can get mm-hmm. symptoms on the lower part of the spectrum, maybe a little bradycardia, a little like headiness, but it's not something not like aspirin, or it's certainly not like digoxin, where you think of one of those kind of chronic exposures. I'm going to try to summarize all that
0: information. Calcium channel blockers are fortunately a rare overdose in the emergency department, But they are some of the scariest because patients can die despite maximal treatment. There are two types of calcium channel blockers, the non-dihydropyridines and the dihydropyridines. And I can personally never remember which is which and all that stuff. I have a little mnemonic that I use to remind myself, and that is nifedipine dilates vessels. So N-D-V. Nifedipine, diltiazem, verapamil. And which one dilates the vessels? nifedipine dilates vessels and then verapamil works most on the heart and diltiazem is kind of in the middle but works more on the heart and this is important because it will affect what symptoms you see in patients who come in with a nifedipine or an overdose that primarily dilates the vessels so you will see hypotension and you may see a reflex tachycardia However, in large overdoses, you lose some of the receptor specificity and you can see the bradycardia even with the medications like nifedipine. Now with the non-dihydropyridines, those are the verapamil and diltiazem, they act directly at the SA node and the AV node. So you're going to see more of a bradycardic effect. When a patient comes in with this, your treatment of course is first ABCs, stabilize them, get access, protect the airway if needed. You'll of course want to get them on a monitor. Also check a blood sugar and an EKG. In patients with a calcium channel blocker overdose, you will expect to see hyperglycemia and this is because of direct action on the pancreas. And if you're not sure if it's a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker overdose, the beta blockers you'll tend not to have that hyperglycemia. Treatment begins after stabilization with Think about decontamination. And this is one of the medications where you do want to consider whole bowel irrigation and activated charcoal because you can have pharmacobesores in the stomach where you have concretions of these pills, particularly the long-acting ones. So you want to get it out of the system as much as possible and remember that the gut may be slowed by the calcium channel blockers, so be cautious and monitor the patient closely. Further treatment is going to involve high-dose insulin and glucose. You can try things like atropine, calcium, and glucagon, but their effects are usually going to be pretty short-lived. This high-dose insulin glucose is a pretty impressive amounts of insulin, from 1 to 2 units per kilogram per hour up to about 10 units per kilogram per hour. And you're going to obviously have to monitor the glucose very closely and give supplemental D10 drip or other forms of glucose if needed, although you may not need it because of the effect of the calcium channel blocker on the pancreas. If a patient is still hypotensive and bradycardic, you can consider pressors, and typically you'll want to use norepinephrine or epinephrine because dopamine requires conversion into these pressors, and that's a calcium-dependent process. Another little pearl is that if somebody is very bradycardic, you can consider transvenous pacing, but that helps with the chronotropy, but not with the inotropy, and the calcium channel blockers can have both negative chronotropic and inotropic effects. If a patient is still symptomatic or has had a very large overdose that you can't manage, and this is currently kind of a a last-ditch effort, although this may change in the future with more evidence, but intralipid, this is a fat emulsion that you can give, and the idea is that it will draw the calcium channel blocker medication into this lipid emulsion and prevent its effects on the tissue. In patients who are severely, severely ill, things like ECMO or intra-aortic balloon pumps have been used in kind of case reports. There isn't really a chronic calcium channel blocker toxicity in the same sense that we see chronic Tylenol or salicylate toxicity. You may have somebody who is a little bit symptomatic from their calcium channel blocker, so somebody who has a little hypotension, maybe a little lightheadedness. Or generalized weakness or heart rates a little slow so they could be symptomatic because their dose is too high but it doesn't build up in the system in the same way as certain other medications do. So think about this toxicity if you see a patient who comes in with bradycardia and hypotension and they also may have symptoms as a result of that like weakness, fatigue, chest pain because of a low flow state or altered mental status. Medications that cause hypotension and bradycardia, there's four of them that I think of. The two that we've spoken about today, digoxin and calcium channel blockers, and then also beta blockers and clonidine. And just to end this series, I'll share a story that I had. As an attending physician, this was the first truly sick patient that I had. It was a young man who had come in, altered, hypotensive, Bradycardic. I think his heart rate was in the 30s and his systolic pressure was in the 70s. And we were trying to get a history. Of course, it was challenging because he was a little altered with those vitals, trying to find out what had happened. And it turned out that he had had a poly overdose, including clonidine, so not clonopin, which we see all the time, but clonidine overdose, as well as some Percocets, which now you have to worry about the opioids and the Tylenol. I think the only reason that he survived long enough to get to me was that he had also used some cocaine, providing some presser activity in order to maintain his blood pressure and his heart rate. And in that moment, it was around 2 a.m., the first sick patient I'd had as an attending with nobody else there looking over my shoulder, and my thought was, this is what we are here for, to take care of sick patients in the middle of the night. That thought was quickly followed by another, which was... Or I could have gone into dermatology and been home warm in bed instead of here trying to figure out how to save this guy's life. But of course, in the end, he did do fine. We were able to turn him around, get him up to the ICU, and things turned out well for him. Toxicologic overdoses are one of the things that we need to be really good at identifying and managing. We are on the front lines. These patients aren't going to go into their primary care physician's office when they have overdosed at 2am on multiple substances, they're going to come to us. That is really why we went into this and what we're here for. May, thank
1: you so much for being on GemCast. Thanks for sharing your wisdom about these toxicities. And we look forward to having you back another time. Thank you so much. been great. Right. <laughs>